Amen. It's good to be with you this morning. Back recovered. And I appreciate Matt filling in so uh, ably. You can turn to Ezra chapter 1. If you are using the Pew Bible, I don't know what page number that's on, but don't worry, you'll have like 20 minutes to get there before we're reading. So. I am excited to begin this new series today on uh, Ezra and Nehemiah. Um, Ezra and Nehemiah comes to us as two books in the Christian Bible, but these two books really are intended to be taken together. So in fact, in the Hebrew Bible, it's the two books were taken as one unit because they compile together a continuous story. So I say that just to get out of the way that I'm likely to go back and forth between referring to the book of Ezra and Nehemiah or to referring to the books of Ezra and Nehemiah. And so we have that there uh, as our explanation. Uh, Ezra and Nehemiah has long been a favorite of mine, dating back to high school and at least dating back to my undergrad days when Kevin Sanders and I together had a great professor for a course on these, these books. So I was a bit surprised as I started preparing to read sentences like this. Ezra and Nehemiah is one of the most neglected books in the study of the Hebrew Bible Old Testament. But I guess in my 20 years of uh, 20 plus year Christian life, I must say I've never heard a sermon series holding together Ezra and Nehemiah. Though I have heard at least a few that like look to Nehemiah as a study in leadership or that turn to Nehemiah for a building campaign, which will allow me to get a second thing out of the way. Uh, as people have asked what we're preaching through next, I've said, well, we don't have our own building, so we're going to go through Ezra and Nehemiah. Um, but rest assured, that's just like a Bible nerd dad joke. Um, and there's no, there's no capital campaign plan for this series, okay? And there's not going to be any call to, like, grab your swords and your trowels and, like, band together and let's go build one. To preach this book that way is really to lose the plot. While rebuilding the temple and then the walls will feature prominently throughout the book, They're not one-to-one equals with a building, a modern church building. As the special place where God's presence dwells, the church, the people, the family, we are the temple of God. So that what we should, what we read here should stir us up not towards brick and mortar, but toward works of ministry that build up the body of Christ discipling of one another, evangelizing those that don't know Jesus, and living fully surrendered lives with the chief aim that he would receive the worship that he is rightly due. So throughout this series, let's not lose the plot. Let us remember that we are the temple. And indeed, in Ezra and Nehemiah, we will see that while rebuilding the temple does feature prominently, God's aim is to rebuild a people His aim is to rebuild a people for himself that he may dwell in their midst as a light to all nations. So, 
despite it being a perhaps neglected book, and despite it being a sometimes misused book, Ezra and Nehemiah remains an intensely relevant book. Not least because all of God's word is intensely relevant. All of it is profitable for teaching. But consider, consider this. In the book, we find a down and out people of God. The glory days, it seems, are long in the rear view, and it's really no wonder that many would find themselves asking, is that it? Did we miss our shot? Is there any hope for the people of God? Is there any hope of renewal and revitalization for God's people? In an era today classified as a secular age or a post-Christian age, we certainly do find ourselves today in a strange new world. One with books like The Great Dechurching and articles like The Misunderstood Reason Millions of Americans Stopped Going to Church, which claims 40 million Americans have stopped going to church in the last 25 years. Indeed, we live, okay, we live on one of two continents in the world where the church is in decline, Europe and North America. Do God's people have hope in such a setting? Or consider a number of the other issues we'll face in the course of this study. You have the old timers reminiscing about the glory days. There's opposition to God's mission in the world. There's widespread biblical illiteracy among the people of God. Then there's a widespread cultural accommodation leading God's people to live no different than those around them. And there's discouragement, exhaustion, hopelessness deterring God's people from staying focused on his mission. I don't know about you, but that does just ring a little bit familiar to me. And so I'm excited about this study together. However, to get our bearings on this story, I think it will be helpful for us to review the situation God's people were in at the time of writing. Because the exile and particularly this post-exile period are often periods of the Old Testament narrative that just remain a little bit fuzzy to us. If when I was in when I was in uh, elementary school, probably all on into middle school as well, um, when I learned U.S. history, I I think that I th- it seemed like World War II was the end of U.S. history because each year we seemed to cover like up to World War II. And then we, that was just like just in time for school to be out for the summer. And so like everything I learned about Vietnam and like from the 60s and so on, I learned from Forrest Gump because we just never made it that far. <laughs> we just never made it that far in school. So like it was like World War II, bring out the shaving cream, let's go for the summer. Um, in much the same way, I think that as Christians, we can often follow the Old Testament narrative through Genesis, through the Exodus, through Joshua, Judges, and even into the kings with David uh, and the united monarchy. But once we start getting into the divided kingdom, the prophets, the exile, and then the post-exile, it just gets a little bit more fuzzy. Seeing the great hope of Ezra and Nehemiah, and particularly the great 
hope of Ezra chapter 1 and 2 today hinges on reading this text in its historical situation. So hang with me as we have a little longer on-ramp to our text this morning. Uh, I do believe spending this time here will help us to see the grace and the gravity when we do read Ezra chapter 1. So uh, this might be a 20, 25-minute intro, but uh, I get a pass because I'm introing the whole series. So um, if we will reach back first to Deuteronomy chapter 28. Deuteronomy chapter 28, we can be reminded of God's covenant with Israel as they're drawing near to enter the promised land. These words are delivered near the end of Moses' life and near the end of their wilderness wandering. And they lay out God's special relationship with his covenant people. There we can read in verse 1. It says, if you, and if you faithfully obey, speaking to the Israelites, and if you faithfully obey the voice of the Lord your God, being careful to do all his commandments that I command you today, the Lord your God will set you high above all the nations of the earth. Down to verse 7. The Lord will cause your enemies who rise against you to be defeated before you. They shall come out against you one way and flee before you seven ways. The Lord will establish you as a people, holy to himself, as he has sworn to you, if you keep the commandments of the Lord your God and walk in his ways. And so God's promised here blessings on the nation of Israel if they will walk in faith, obeying the covenant. But in the same chapter, verse 15, if you will not obey the voice of the Lord your God or be careful to do all his commandments and his statutes that I command you today, then all of these curses shall come upon you and overtake you. Verse 36, the Lord will bring you and your king whom you set over you to a nation that neither you nor your fathers have known, and there you shall serve other gods of wood and stone, and you shall become a horror, a proverb, and a byword among all the peoples where the Lord will lead you away. And so here we have God's law graciously laid out for his people. Here you go. Obey the voice of the Lord your God, and he will pour out blessings on his people. But should Israel be so foolish to possess the law of God and turn aside from this, then he promises that they will receive curses as discipline. And not just that, he promises that he will let his covenant people be brought into a land they have not known to be ruled over as subjects of a foreign king. Now, if we fast forward to the time of David and Solomon, we can see the short-lived golden years of the united Israelite kingdom, growing, prospering under David's rule, and then carrying on with Solomon. Then, in 1 Kings 12, that period of unity comes to an end with unrest as God's people become divided. The once united nation of Israel is now two different nations, with Israel in the north and then Judah in the south. And as you read through the book, books of the kings, you can find each subs, uh, subsequent king, both in Israel and in Judah, evaluated by whether they lead in a way that did what was right in the eyes of the Lord 
or whether they lead in a way that leads God's people into sin and idolatry. We know that despite God's gracious provision of the law and of prophets to call his people back to the covenant, most kings do lead God's people away from him. Until eventually he's had enough and his people get the full weight of the curses promised to them in Deuteronomy. First, in 722 B.C., the northern kingdom falls to the Assyrians. We see this in 2 Kings chapter 17, verse 7. And it says, And this occurred because the people of Israel had sinned against the Lord their God. 2 Kings tells us that the Assyrians carried the Israelites away into exile. But thanks to some leaders like Hezekiah, who did what was right in the eyes of the Lord, the southern kingdom of Judah, including Jerusalem, it holds on for a little while before ultimately it, the southern kingdom itself laps back in their unfaithfulness and that's them the same curse of exile. Jeremiah is sent to tell Judah, because you've not listened to the warnings from the Lord and turned back, this is in 20, Jeremiah chapter 25, the whole land shall become a ruin and a waste. And these nations shall serve the king of Babylon 70 years. 586 BC, we see this in 2 Kings 24 and 25, at the hands of the Babylonian king Nebuchadnezzar, hear this sad, sad verse. And he burned the house of the Lord and the king's house and all the houses of Jerusalem Every great house he burned down. Now Judah, the southern kingdom, was taken into exile. God's people banished from their land, their temple demolished, and their people carried away in exile under an evil nation. All because of their failure to honor the Lord and obey the covenant. And yet what's amazing, what's amazing is Jeremiah promises, even while promising the punishment to come, he promises a future restoration for Israel. In almost the same breath that he pronounces judgment, he's promising God's grace that this won't be the last word in 2512. Then after 70 years are completed, I will punish the king of Babylon and that nation, the land of the Chaldeans, for their iniquity declares the Lord, making the land an everlasting waste. And then in that great, <coughs> often quoted, out of context passage, Jeremiah 29, he promises this. For thus says the Lord, this is verse 10. For thus says the Lord, when 70 years are completed for Babylon, I will visit you and I will fulfill to you my promise and bring you back to this place. For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord, plans for welfare and not for evil, to give you a future and a hope. Then you will call upon me and come and pray to me, and I will hear you. You will seek me and find me. When you seek me with all your heart, I will be found by you, declares the Lord. And I will restore your fortunes and gather you from all the nations and all the places where I have driven you, declares the Lord. And I will bring you back to the place from which I sent you into exile. Isaiah even would go as far as to name in advance the foreign king who will be used by God to overthrow the Babylonians and bring God's people back to their land. You can read it in Isaiah 44, 28. 
who says of Cyrus, he is my shepherd. Isaiah says from the Lord, Cyrus is the one that I'm going to use to to shepherd my people, to, to, to get my vengeance on the Babylonians and then to shepherd my people back. Isaiah 44, 28, and you can read through chapter 45. So then, for the faithful Israelite who didn't lose the plot in all of these decades of suffering, these words, this promise of redemption would be their hope. That though they now face the discipline of exile, the Lord is yet gracious and is not through with them yet. I've said before, I'm going to say it again, you you can miss me with this like silly idea that there's no grace in the Old Testament, okay? That, just, that dog won't hunt, okay? It's a wondrous grace, a wondrous grace that despite their profane idolatry and their unfaithfulness, God remains steadfastly committed to his covenant and works to discipline his people and yet still preserve a remnant. And for that remnant, His covenant faithfulness remained their hope. We can see from Daniel in chapter 9, as he hopes in the words of Jeremiah while crying out to the Lord in corporate confession. Listen to this from Daniel chapter 9, 2 through 5. In the first year of his reign, I, Daniel, perceived in the books the number of years that according to the word of the Lord to Jeremiah the prophet, must pass before the end of the desolations of Jerusalem, namely 70 years. Daniel says, I I heard the word of the Lord from Jeremiah. Then I turned my face to the Lord God, seeking him by prayer and pleas for mercy with fasting and sackcloth and ashes. I prayed to the Lord my God and made confession, saying, O Lord, the great and awesome God who keeps covenant and steadfast love with those who love him and keep his commandments, We have sinned and done wrong and acted wickedly and rebelled, turning aside from your commandments and rules. So this is is Daniel's hope. This is Daniel's prayer. This is what he is hoping for during this time of exile. Now then, I think the stage is set for us to read and see the grace of Ezra chapter 1. With all of that in mind, hear the word of the Lord from Ezra chapter 1. In the first year of Cyrus, king of Persia, that the word of the Lord by the mouth of Jeremiah might be fulfilled, the Lord stirred up the spirit of Cyrus, king of Persia, so that he made a proclamation throughout all his kingdom and also put it in writing. Thus says Cyrus, king of Persia, the Lord, the God of heaven, has given me all the kingdoms of the earth. And he has charged me to build him a house at Jerusalem, which is in Judah. Whoever is among you of all his people, may his God be with him, and let him go up to Jerusalem, which is in Judah, and rebuild the house of the Lord, the God of Israel. He is the God who is in Jerusalem. And let each survivor, in whatever place he sojourns, be assisted by the men of his place with silver and gold, with goods and with beasts, besides freewill offerings for the house of God that is in Jerusalem. Then rose up the heads of the fathers' houses of Judah and Benjamin, 
and the priests and the Levites, everyone whose spirit God had stirred to go up to rebuild the house of the Lord that is in Jerusalem. And all who were about them aided them with vessels of silver, with gold, with goods, with beasts, and with costly wares, besides all that was freely offered. Cyrus the king also brought out the vessels of the house of the Lord that Nebuchadnezzar had carried away from Jerusalem and placed in the house of his gods. Cyrus, king of Persia, brought these out in the charge of Methradath, the treasurer, who counted them out to Sheshbazar, the prince of Judah. And this was the number of them, 30 basins of gold, 1,000 basins of silver, 29 censers, 30 bowls of gold, 410 bowls of silver, and 1,000 other vessels. All the vessels of gold and silver were 5,400. All these did Sheshbazar bring up when the exiles were brought up from Babylonia to Jerusalem. Father, may you now grant us to understand your word. You grant us to understand what it means and how it applies to us now. And Father, through your word, would you stir us up to the work that you've called us to do? Amen. Do you, do you see, as we read that, the lavish grace and the great hope of Ezra chapter 1? Through the proclamation of Cyrus, God is saying to his people, I'm not through with you yet. I will yet accomplish my purposes. The project marches on. And I will yet make Israel a light for the nations that through you all nations will see my glory. The first takeaway for us this morning is this. God will accomplish his purposes. He is in Ezra 1 fulfilling the words of Jeremiah, the words of Isaiah, and answering the prayer of Daniel. He's pronouncing a renewal for his covenant people. Note how the proclamation goes forth to the entirety of the vast Persian empire. As God calls to all of his scattered people, it's time to come home. Though I've scattered you in the desert, I've done so to discipline you so that I might still use you. And so from whatever part of the empire the Israelites find themselves in, they're now free to head home. Note also the similarities of this coming home from exile with the former coming home in the Exodus. This is framed as a new Exodus for God's people, where just as God's people left Egypt with the spoils of the Egyptians in Exodus 12, 35, and 36, now they leave Persia assisted on their way with the willing plunder of the Persians. This return from exile is a new exodus as God again works mightily to preserve a people for himself. Note also their marching orders. The edict of Cyrus says he's been charged to see to it that the temple be rebuilt. The temple, the place of worship, the place where the special presence of God resided, the place ransacked and in shambles. 
Now God has stirred up Cyrus to see to it that it gets rebuilt. What a hope, okay? What a new day that is now dawning in the life of Israel. Finally, note this scene and just imagine the emotional weight of this for the people of God. Just imagine the hope of it all after decades and decades of exile. Cyrus the king also brought out the vessels of the house of the Lord that Nebuchadnezzar had carried away from Jerusalem and placed in the house of his gods. Cyrus, king of Persia, brought these out in the charge of Methradath, the treasurer, who counted them out to Sheshbazzar, the prince of Judah. Can you imagine being God's people after all of that? After Nebuchadnezzar would ransack the temple, taking away the temple vessels, and now, through Cyrus, those vessels have been returned to the people of God. Though Nebuchadnezzar had carried away their vessels of worship, now all of these are returned to God's people, showing his people that there remains continuity with their former state. The project's not lost. They're headed home to rebuild the temple and with the temple vessels previously plundered. And so we see that God will accomplish his purposes. Church, where do you need to hear that this morning? Where do you need to hear that this morning? God will accomplish his purposes. You need to hear that personally in your own life, that God will accomplish his saving purpose in you, that he works for his glory and for the good of those that are called according to his purpose. Christian, you have a part to play in seeking him, in turning in repentance from the idols of this world and turning to him in faith. We can see that even in the text ahead. But know this, he is faithful to accomplish his purposes. Do you need to hear that in your family or your extended family? Though he does call us to work for the good, we all know that we eventually reach the limits where it just seems like there's nothing left for us to do, nothing left for us to say, but now we just rely desperately on him to do a work in our loved one's lives. I think I've said before, my own grandmother prayed for years that her grandkids would know Jesus, and I don't know that she truly lived to see those prayers answered. Christian, do you need to hear and be reminded of that for the church? that God will accomplish his purposes in the church. In a day and age where, sure, you can look around and you can find some nonsense going on in the name of Christ's church, and sure, you can look around and at times it can like feel like Elijah who says, I, even only I, am left of the faithful. It's easy and it's even fashionable to look around at the church today and just throw stones at her. But Christian, you dare not insult Christ's bride. And you dare not cast away what Christ has brought together by his blood. The Christian has no choice but to love God's people and work together for her betterment. 
you don't like what you see in Christ's church, that's fine. But grumbling and complaining about that is weak, okay? Just roll up your sleeves and get after making his body a better reflection of his grace to the world. Get to work that the glory of God might better be shown off in his people. And as you do, be reminded of this. God will accomplish his purposes. Second takeaway we can see from this passage is that God sovereignly provides all that his people need for his purposes. God sovereignly provides all that his people need for his purposes. And he may do so even through the most unlikely means so that he gets all the glory for it. As if it's not amazing enough that he stirs up Cyrus to send his people back to Jerusalem, he also provides through Cyrus all that they will need to rebuild the temple. Verse 4, And let each survivor in whatever place he sojourns be assisted, the men of his place with silver and gold, with goods and with beasts, besides freewill offerings for the house of God that is in Jerusalem. And in verse 6, and all who were about them aided them with vessels of silver, with gold, with goods, with beasts, and with costly wares, besides all that was freely offered. <coughs> in the words of Proverbs 21.1, the king's heart is a stream of water in the hand of the Lord. He turns it wherever he will. God here ordains that the unbelieving Cyrus will conquer the Babylonians, and then God sovereignly stirs up Cyrus to accomplish his purpose and even to provide for it. On first glance to verse 2, it can seem like Cyrus was particularly loyal to Yahweh. However, you can see in verse 3 that Cyrus's detachment, saying of the people, may his God be with him. What is uh, amazing is how God works even through history to orchestrate all that he purposes to come to pass. So while it was the normal practice of the Assyrians and the Babylonians when they conquered a land to, take, to carry the people away, the Persians took a different approach to maintaining peace. It was the practice of the Persians to grant some semblance of local rule and to encourage the local practice of their local faith, so that by this, the Persians hoped to maintain peace and then even garner favor from all of the local gods. And so God works through Cyrus as he decrees that the temple be rebuilt and that the Jews be provided all that they need to do it. Among other things, this reminds us, reminds us that as Christians, our ultimate hope is not in the people in power. But our ultimate hope remains in our God who is on his throne over and above all earthly rulers. Those earthly rulers are like a stream of water in the hand of the Lord. He turns it wherever he will. This point always gets me in some trouble. But alas, it is an election year and so it bears repeating. When I say something like this, inevitably somebody will come up to me and say, so you're saying that our leaders are not important? No, 
I'm saying that it is not ultimately important, that our ultimate hope as Christians doesn't rest there. Leaders in politics and the policies that they pass are of relative importance. And for my part, I would rather like for religious liberty to be maintained, and I would like for government to bear the sword justly, uh, constraining evil, and I would like for the gross, murderous injustice of abortion to be illegal. But whatever comes to pass, and whatever 80-year-old ends up running our country, God remains on his throne. Listen to me. God remains on his throne, and he can and will continue to build his kingdom either way as he's doing all around the world in nations all around the world with all kinds of unbelieving leaders. So, fine, give someone your vote, but don't give them your ultimate hope. Don't let Fox News, CNN, or anyone else rob you of the steadfast hope that God remains on the throne. His purposes are not thwarted, and he's not our, and he is our ultimate hope. Okay, if the church went forth in power, growing mightily during the reign of Nero and Caligula, we'll be okay. God sovereignly provides all that his people need for his purposes, and he's still doing so today. Jesus says, I will build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. And that's not, hear me, that's not a specific promise to each local church, but it is a promise that his global church will go forth in victorious power, accomplishing all that he intends for it to do. And from that, he will accomplish through our local church just what he intends for us. I could go through I could go through testimony after testimony of his provision to us already at Antioch. Provision from within as he stirred up his people. Provision from outside as he's stirred in other people's hearts. Multiple times he's already provided just financial provision that like I never even asked for or fundraised for. The checks just showed up in the mail. Sometimes it took months for us to even figure out who they were coming from and how it was that they heard about us. And not just money, okay? God's provided for us in leaders and volunteers in any number of other provisions. Church, let's not forget that God will provide all that his people need for his mission. We have here a biblical record of his faithfulness. And he continues to do that work even today. If we need it, he will provide it. And if he doesn't provide it, then we must not need it. And if we feel that we do, then let us continue to cry out to him humbly and desperately to provide for our local family all that we need for his purposes. As my mentor, George, uh, Robinson, who he's got this habit of just like sneaking in unannounced on a Sunday morning, by the way. But as he likes to say, God rarely shows us the end from the beginning. More often, it's like holding a small flashlight in the dark of night. 
where our first step of faith is illuminated for us, and as we walk out in that step, he is faithful to provide for the next step. In that way, let us both individually and corporately walk out in faith, trusting him that he, to provide for all that we need to accomplish his mission. Third takeaway. God stirs up his people to accomplish his purposes. Note here how the same language used of Cyrus in verse 1 is then used of the people in verse 5. The, the book is making clear that while Cyrus and the people are the agents, it is God at work stirring up all of this to come to pass. And in verse 5, then rose up the heads of the fathers' houses of Judah and Benjamin and the priests and the Levites, everyone whose spirit God had stirred to go up to rebuild the house of the Lord that is in Jerusalem. When God purposes, when God purposes to get something done for his mission, he sovereignly works through means. I've said it before and I'll say it again. He sovereignly and providentially works through means. And remembering this keeps us from that like vulgar, superficial application of God's sovereignty that says something like, well, he's sovereign, so if he wanted me to do something, he would just bring it across my path. That's just not how he works. He works through means. So his sovereignty should never be an excuse for laxity in the mission. Rather, it must always be fuel for the mission, recognizing that he has revealed what he wants us to do, and through that, he expects us to get after it. His sovereignty is never an excuse for our lack of effort. Christian, his purpose for your life, his purpose for your life is that you would grow in Jesus, help others grow in Jesus, and share the good news of Jesus with those that don't know him. That's his purpose in the world now. And he will accomplish that through the means of his church. When his church takes seriously all that he has given us in his word. That may take a great deal of effort on our part. Okay, Ezra chapter 1, he stirs up his people to go do something. Ezra 2, through the end of Nehemiah, a great deal of effort. That may take a great deal of effort on your part, figuring out how to get out of a rut and stir your affections to grow in Jesus. It may take a great deal of effort for you to build the relationships by which you help others grow and they help you grow. And it may take a great deal of trial and error and a great deal of effort figuring out what it looks like for you to be used by God to evangelize those that don't know Jesus. But each and every one of us have a part to play in that work. He is indeed sovereign, but he works through his people, and we must never grow weary in seeking out how we can accomplish all that he's called us to do. If we were to read through all the names of chapter two, which we won't do this morning. Um, I'll let you do that in base group next week. Um, 
One of the most remarkable things that we see about the list of names in chapter 2 is that there's really nothing remarkable about the names in chapter 2. God works through very ordinary means to accomplish the work that he has in the book of Ezra. Even we see in chapter 2 names like Nehemiah. That's not the same Nehemiah. Okay? Uh, Ezra himself wouldn't be on the scene for nearly 80 years from where we stand here. And Nehemiah, another 10 or 15 years after that. God works through ordinary people to accomplish his work. And so church, here's my encouragement to you from this. Do what he's called you to do. Keep your eyes on his word and let it call the shots for your life. Don't accept all the excuses that our flesh can just conjure up for laxity in his mission, but take our marching orders from his word and let it call the shots. Fourth and final. God graciously works to preserve a people for himself. We, again, won't read all of chapter 2 together, but chapter 2 resounds with the hope that he's not done with his people. But even through the discipline of the exile, he's bringing his people back together from near and far to continue his purpose of redemption. And chapter 2's 42,360 people may seem a pale sum considering Israel's former glory, but still there's a gracious, hopeful new day as we see continuity with all that's gone before them. As we see leaders, and we see priests, and Levites, and we see temple servants, we see ultimately that he's not done with his people. And we see on the part of the people, we see some renewed concern for right worship as they seek to register themselves as belonging to God's people. And the priests seek to register themselves as priests. And then chapter 2 closes with what is again an emotionally charged, joyous sign that a new day is dawning. Hallelujah, rising from the ashes by God's preservation, Israel continues on. Chapter 2, verse 68. Some of the heads of families, when they came to the house of the Lord that is in Jerusalem, made freewill offerings for the house of God to erect it on its site. According to their ability, they gave to the treasury of the work 61,000 derricks of gold, 5,000 minas of silver, and a hundred priests' garments. Now the priests, the Levites, some of the people, the singers, the gatekeepers, and the temple servants lived in their towns, and all the rest of Israel in their towns. Again, hear the grace of that. Back in their home, provided for priests and Levites. The work is far from done. Indeed, the book of Ezra and Nehemiah stretches over a hundred years. Ezra himself doesn't land back in Jerusalem until nearly 80 years later in chapter 7. Nehemiah more than another decade after that in Nehemiah chapter 1. But for now we can see this. All is beginning to be set right in Israel. And his will is that the temple be rebuilt out of worship to him. But even more, his gracious reclamation project is to reclaim his people for himself. And that's underway. 
And so we see that God has not abandoned his plan of redemption to set apart a people for himself and then through that people to shine forth his light to all nations. Consider this in closing. Because God was unilaterally, unilaterally himself, all on his own, faithful to his covenant and preserved this remnant, his plan of salvation goes forward. Because he draws his people back here from the north and from the south, from the east and from the west in partial fulfillment of his promises, then he can continue on in the more ultimate fulfillment of those promises. As we read to open the service, Jeremiah 31, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah, not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt. My covenant that they broke, though I was their husband, declares the Lord. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel. After those days, declares the Lord, I will put my law within them, and I will write it on their hearts, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. And no longer shall each one teach his neighbor and each his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me, from the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord, for I will forgive their iniquity, and I will remember their sin no more. Because God is faithful to preserve his people in this new exodus, then through this reclaimed people, he can continue to stoke the fires that await the Messiah and the greater exodus to come. Because he stirs his people here in Ezra 1 and 2 to go and rebuild the temple, there's a place for the boy Jesus to go in Luke chapter 2 to be presented to the Lord, to console the old man Simeon, to get lost from his parents saying, didn't you know I'd be in my father's house? There's a temple there for Jesus to drive out money changers and there's a temple so that the veil could rip in two. Because God is faithful here in Ezra 1 and 2 to to preserve his people, to preserve the priesthood, then through this people, the great high priest will come and make the ultimate sacrifice for sin. If you're here today and not a Christian, then here's the good news for you this morning. Because of our sin, we have all been exiled. We've all been cast out from the presence of our creator. But God, in his grace, is gathering together from all over the world a redeemed people brought back to himself, brought back from their sin by the blood of the cross. And so if you would turn to Jesus in faith, you too can be saved from your sin and you can be brought into the special presence of God in the church. Though you've run away from your creator in your rebellion, he stands ready now to receive you, not by your own earning, but by what Christ has earned on your behalf. Look, if that's you this morning, we'd love to talk with you more, okay? Talk with the friend that brought you. Talk with the person sitting beside you. Talk with any of us who have been up front this morning. We would love nothing more to talk with you more about this beautiful gospel.
But church, for us who have been gathered to Christ in this new temple, the church, let us be reminded once more that God will accomplish his purposes. And God sovereignly provides all that we need. God works through his people, and God remains faithful to preserve a people for himself. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. Father, we thank you for this record of your faithfulness that we can turn to and be reminded for our own lives. God, that you have, because you have shown yourself faithful time and time again, we can trust in your faithfulness for us now. Father, I pray that you would do by your word that work of stirring up us as a people, uh, Lord, to greater encouragement where we need to be encouraged, comfort where we need to be comforted, and yes, Lord, conviction even where we need to be convicted. Father, I pray that you would stir in us a desire to get after the mission that you've called us to do. Father, I pray that we could lay aside any uh, excuses, any thing that would hold us back from that, Lord, and that we could trust in you to provide for uh, how we can get after that mission. So, Father, use, use us as your church. Refine us. Make us more and more a reflection of your glory to those around us. We pray that in Jesus' name. Amen.